Good morning. Herb Oscar Anderson. Hello again, and welcome back to the return of the Morning Mayor Season 2. And thanks, as always, for spending your time with us as we take a look at the life and times of Herbert Oscar Anderson. We have an amazing guest today, Dee Dee from The Crystals. Yes. Oops, now, sorry. ladies, no, don't apologize. Ladies, I'm so excited. <laughs> clearly, you are very excited. <laughs> Suzanne can't even contain herself over this one. <clears throat> No, but seriously, this is, uh, the, I don't know anything about Dee Dee and the Crystals, so learn me. Well, I'll start out. Uh, so we spoke with Dee Dee. She was great. One of the first girl bands out there, I think, but also definitely our first girl band, band as part of the podcast. So we're really excited about it. And um, she gave us a lot of insight into how she started as a really young girl. Um, you know, it was kind of a just sort of after school fun type of thing. So pretty interesting story. But yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, I really enjoyed her story about their first appearance on stage in the Apollo Theater. And uh, the first time they had mascara on and their wigs and their dresses. And you think these kids are 14 and 17 years old and they're performing at the Apollo Theater. So she is great. She's a lot of fun to talk to and she has a lot of great stories. So when they wore wigs, did they not recognize them on the street afterwards if they wore the wigs on stage? Would they not know who they were afterwards? No, I think it was maybe just part of the getup. I guess. I don't know. We didn't ask her. If this were a video podcast, we'd have to all wear wigs for this episode. We would. We would. I wouldn't wear mascara, yeah, well, but I would wear a would but I wouldn't wear a. I would not I have to, to be, wear mascara. Yes, I had to wear mascara, and Sue had. If to wear I had mascara. to put it on, you're putting yeah, it on. Put it on because I don't ever wear mascara. Well, you but, know it is. It, you know, it's a good question. I don't know how their costumes were. I don't know what the whole. We didn't get into that, but that's kind of a good question. Well, you, you look at every girl group in the 60s, and that was it. In the early 60s was the girl groups. They all had a specific look. Look, yeah. If I recall, it was like a nightgown on yeah. stage, right? That was yeah. like, what were they wearing? It was, yeah. what were they wearing? Well, they had usually well, like, like those cute little yeah. suits and, uh, you know. They very, always matched. Yeah, they always matched, and they had those little kitten heels, not yeah, you know, little kitten heels, yeah. and then they had usually like a beehive or some type of. What is yeah, it? What is a kitten heel? A kitten heel is a small little heel, like it's a not one a inch heel. It's a little kitten heel. John, yeah. look it up. I'm sure you have one in your wardrobe. They were all very pretty. They all looked really nice. Hello. Well, hello there, Miss Dee Dee. How are you this evening? I am fine. Well, uh, I'd like to introduce you to my good friend, Suzanne Kennedy, who's going to also be at the controls with me. So she's going to be probably chiming in with a lot of questions. And um, Okay. So, hello. Nice to meet you. Same here. So, so we're just going to get started. Um, do you think okay. I have to introduce it again? So no, 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 I think no. you're fine. Okay. All right. So uh, I'm very honored to have Dee Dee Kenny Brew from the Crystals, one of the mega group uh, girl groups in the 60s. And um, we're going to talk to her about her time uh, in New York, uh, 
her times with her hit songs, Da uh, Do Run Run. Does that mean anything? I have to ask you. Nope. And I asked the writer, who was Jeff Barry. He was writing with his wife, who's no longer alive, named, uh, um, oh God, Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich. They were a songwriting team, and they wrote, oh, lots of songs. Chapel of Love, they wrote so many songs. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I asked Jeff when I saw him last, what did it mean? Because a lot of people have asked me, and I said, well, what it means is whatever you want to be. And when he walked me home, you don't want to be... Uh, you don't want to be too specific, so you just say, did you run, run, run? <laughs> <laughs> just to say, oh, well, you know, when he walked me home. <laughs> so fill <laughs> in the blanks. Did you run, run? <laughs> and when he walked me home. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. okay. So You know that's a New York song because people don't walk. In other places, they drive. <laughs> but in oh, New York, right. your boyfriend would walk you home. Yeah. So you are from New York City. And, Born and raised in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you started uh, your group. Were you a bunch of girlfriends or? No, actually. Um, okay. This is exactly how we started. My mom worked at a junior high school. They called them junior high schools in those days. It was in Ocean Hill, Brownsville area. I lived over by the Crown Heights area. Barbara lived over by the Bed-Stuy area. But Barbara's uncle lived over in the Ocean Hill, Brownsville area by the school where my mom worked. Okay. So this man named Benny Wells wanted to start a girls group. The Cheryls were out, the Chantels were out, and he wanted a girls group. So he asked my mom, because she worked in the office at the school, if she knew any girls, famous teenage girls. She says, well, I've got a daughter home, and she likes to sing around the house. I can bring her in. So he did, and uh, she did, and he tried me out with some girls from the neighborhood there in Ocean Hill, Brownsville. And I maybe had one rehearsal with them, and he says, no, 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 no. Because he felt those girls were more interested in boys than singing. So he wanted somebody that was really <laughs> that was really going to be a little bit more easy to control. So he had a niece named Barbara Alston, who he heard had entered a uh, um, talent show at her school. It was a high school called Maxwell. And she and her girlfriends came in second, I believe, in the, in the contest. So he asked Barbara to come over with her friends who were in that uh, contest with her. That was Myrna Gerard. It was uh, Mary Thomas and Barbara. And so that made the four of us, Mary, uh, Barbara, and Myrna. And me. So he started rehearsing us, uh, you know, at the school there, because after school, they would let him use the, uh, you know, the music room to rehearse. And we rehearsed over at PS73, it was called at the time. And he was teaching us how to sing together and everything like that. But I didn't really know any of those girls because I, I didn't live over that area. Anyway, he rehearsed us for a while. And then he said, OK, we need some original material. Because his idea was to get us a record deal, which we knew nothing about. We were just happy to learn how to do harmonies and stuff like that. You know, we, it was all new for us. Now, how old so, were you? How old were you? At that time, I was 15. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. 15 years old. Anyway, he took us over to another part of town, which was in East New York. And there was a guy there named Leroy Bates 
who was writing songs, original material. So he took us over there and Leroy gave us some of his material. Now Leroy had a wife and a little girl and uh, he had a a, um, sister-in-law named Pat. So Benny, our manager at that time of the keyboard player who was teaching us, says, well, why don't we add a fifth member? She was in high school too. See, the three of them were going to graduate the next year. So he figured, well, I'll add a fifth girl. That'll be even better for the harmonies. So he added Pat. Now we had Pat Wright, Barbara Alston, Mary Thomas, uh, um, Myrna Gerard, and Dee Dee Kennebrew. So that was the five of us. And we would rehearse, and he'd teach us all kinds of songs, like um, not really rock and roll. He was teaching us things like The Shadow of Your Smile, uh, Day by Day, Green Dolphin Street, all these kind of songs, because he was thinking of putting us like in Grossingers and the Pines and place like that. So we needed a name. And he says, okay. We thought about names. And so I finally said, what about Crystal? Because Crystal was the name of the little girl of the guy who was writing our songs, our original oh. material. She was about four years old. So I said, well, what about the Crystals? We could get so everybody said, oh, yeah, that's a great name. So we used the name, the Crystals. Well, after a little bit more rehearsal, he decided to take us over to Broadway to try to get us a record deal. And we went over there and we went from door to door at the Brill Building. The Brill Building, the, yes. That's the big building, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it was, I think it just was 1619 at the time. And, um, you know, a lot of uh, uh, people, songwriters, when they're like Carol King and Jerry Goffin, they were, write, they were a writing couple. And then Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil and Jeff Barry and Nellie Greenwich. So one night we were up there rehearsing in one of the studios. And... Um, this little guy came in and he says, he heard us, he overheard us, it was about 7 p.m. one evening, and he says, are you all, you know, are you all recording? We said, no, but, we, you know, we were interested in recording. And so uh, he said his name was Phil Spector and that he had recorded uh, Every Little Breath I Take with Gene Pitney. So we knew that song, I liked that a lot. And then he said he also had done... Um, Oh, gosh. Benny King, Spanish Harlem. So he was naming stuff that, you know, we knew. Right. But, you know, not being in the business, we didn't know what the heck a producer is or anything like mm-hmm. that. He was still over at uh, Atlantic Records with Lieber and Stoller and Doc Pomus and those people. And so he asked us if we wanted to record. Well, of course we wanted to record. So we was, he said, well, the song you all were singing, which was an original song called He's All Right. He says, slow that song down like a ballad. So we did. And then he says, okay. And he says, I'm going to do something with the song and come back and uh, we'll rehearse it. So he added some verses to the song and he took out the whole title, He's All Right. And he let one of the verses, which was There's No Other Like My Baby, mm-hmm. be the head of the lead of the song. So um, we went into the studio. And I think it was April. No, it might have been May because the girls went in. They, it was uh, graduation time for them. And uh, they were went to their prom and they still had on their prom dresses. <laughs> so he told me that's so true. But anyway, they still had on their prom dresses because in those days, the kids didn't stay out all night after the prom. There right. was no such thing as you go to the hell and party. party. The prom was usually held in the gym, in the gymnasium. 
you had on your prom dresses and you, after the prom, like 10, 11 o'clock, you, you went home. Right. So he says, well, after the prom, you're going to come over to this to, uh, it was a place called Mirror Sound. It was on 46th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue, I believe. And so he says well, it was in a hotel in the back of the hotel on the first floor. It was called the Hotel America. And the back room was a recording studio. But a lot of people had recorded there because they had the bill, uh, the billboard and the cash box pinned up on the wall of all the six songs that had come out of that, you know, that uh, recording studio. So it was well known, Mirror Sound. Anyway, we went in there and we recorded There's No Other Like My Baby. And he had the other side was, um, Oh Yeah, Maybe Baby. That was the name. And he wanted to make that the flip side, the main A side, as they called it back in those days. But anyway, when we did the two songs, we did it all in about three hours. Oh, we thought it sounded so great because we're hearing it on the big speakers and the studio and the musicians are all there. Oh, we were just ecstatic over the moon. And uh, he was as well because the songs had come out beautifully. And so we, the next day, our manager was so pleased, his name was Benny Wells, and he took us to Delaware to go to the beach and go fishing, which we, <laughs> we caught a blowfish. <laughs> we were so happy because I'm telling you, after hearing it, you know, in the room with the piano and everything, and then you're hearing all the music and you're hearing it over the big speakers, everything sounded great. So anyway... That was in uh, May. Well, about, I think it was October. One day I come home from school, put on the radio like I normally would, and what do I hear? There's no other like my baby. Wow. I said, oh, that's our song. That's our song. We're on the radio. Oh, you know, I don't know what we thought we were going to do. We just were having fun. That's amazing. Well, the song was, yeah, the song was on the radio. Oh, my goodness. And um, so... About one month later, the Apollo called and asked us to be on the show. And we had, I had never even seen a show. We were on the show. I think on the show was the Orlans, uh, Wilson Pickett, who was singing with a group called the Falcons at that time. Uh, the Coasters, I think, were the headliners. And, oh, gosh, who might have been the drifters, had out up on the roof, but it was like all acts that we knew. Might have been Gary U.S. Bonds. Oh, my goodness, we were just ecstatic. I never even saw a show, never went to the theater to see a show at all. And now we were on one. We had to run and go get costumes made and everything because we didn't have any costumes or shoes or pictures or anything. Didn't you all have, sudden, and, like, were you nervous at all? I mean, I can imagine sitting in a studio singing, but then going well, up you, in front of a live audience is a whole different kettle of fish. Yes. Well, you know what it was? There were five of us. If I had been alone, probably would have been more nervous. But no, I was not nervous because we were all together and we we only did those two songs. But the, let me tell you, the worst part was when we went on and we opened, you know, there's no other opens up like almost acapella. And it's four lines before the whole group comes in together in harmony singing. There's no other like my baby. No, 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 no. So Barbara started out. She was our first lead singer. Uh, there's a story I want you to know. It's about my baby and how I love him so. 
And then the music came in, and we all came in with harmony. When we all came in with harmony, it was so wrong. But we just kept on going, never stopped. And I just focused on this one kid that was sitting in the audience, and I never, ever changed from just looking at him, mm. just watching him. Went, oh, when we came off, oh, mascara was flying everywhere. We were crying. <laughs> we didn't know what happened. Oh, my God. We couldn't imagine what was wrong. We know the song. We know. Well, what had happened was a copyist had copied the song. The song was in E flat. And the copyist had copied the song in E. Oh. Well, there's a big difference between what you sing in E flat and in E. And by us not having a big orchestra come in at first, just like one chord, and then she says something, and then she says something else, and then another chord, we couldn't tell until we all came in together to make harmony on the fifth bar that it was wrong. We didn't know what was wrong. We just kept going, though. And when we got off, oh, my gosh, we just cried and cried. What's happening? (laughs) Well, (laughs) and we're with a big band about 13, 16 pieces. So they felt so sorry for us. The leader of the band took us downstairs to the band room. He looked at the music and we realized that it was in the wrong key. So he changed all the music for us between shows. And then after that, we're okay. The How next many- show, cause we had like four or five shows that day. Four or five shows. So, uh, wow. Okay. Yes. Yes. So when we, when we came back and once the music was right, we were okay. And it was all big fun. I mean, like I said, it was the first time I ever saw a show. First time I ever went to a theater. Oh, my gosh. I had never. I was so, you know. It had it to have like just been amazing, new. though. It had to have yeah. just been so fun. And you probably were just in the thick of it. So you, didn't, you probably yes. didn't have time to be nervous. It was just probably like, wow, what is just. You're just going with it, right? I guess. Well, like I said, had we been, had I been alone, I'm sure I'd have been nervous. But by there being five of us, we I wasn't nervous. But until we hit that fifth chord <laughs> and we all came out and I'm like, what in the world is wrong? <laughs> and you just kept you know? singing. <laughs> I just kept singing. Just now, kept How would you get it wrong? Going, I'm not, I don't know much about music. So how was it the orchestra that set you off right there they, like you're saying yeah, they, they, were, they were in the wrong well, tone no, so then you had to the, the wrong key yes mm-hmm. right what happened was we didn't know we were in the wrong key because it only starts with there's a story and then one chord i want you to know when i'm only the one girl doom about my baby how I love him so and then done we all came in with wrong as could be mm-hmm. then you can really hear you're all wrong because the band is playing in one key and you're singing in another and we're like what, what in the world we didn't even know what was going on but we knew it was definitely something, <laughs> something wrong. was wrong Something's up. <laughs> something <laughs> was very wrong and so after the show was completely over and everybody had gone on the band took us downstairs looked at the music and then changed the music for us so we were okay for the next show mm-hmm. but that was our first show i said i don't know why they didn't throw tomatoes at us i don't know <laughs> at the apollo <laughs> the apollo is like big 
the Apollo. I know. And that was our first show. Oh, that's great. Oh, my goodness. We were so. But anyway, after that, we played there many times. One year, five times for the year. So it was like a big thing. But at first, that's your first show. And you're out there like, oh, my oh, gosh, no. what happened? <laughs> What's wrong? Oh, my gosh. You know, probably first time we had on mascara. It was like all over our faces. After the we didn't let <laughs> we the audience know. We just kept going. You couldn't have we been just that kept bad. Going until we kept going. going after that. Yeah. So. <laughs> Oh, oh my gosh, we kept going because mm-hmm. what could we do? We couldn't run off. So oh, you we just, just gotta had go to go with it. <laughs> we just gotta go with it. Yeah. And boy, when we got off, we were just all in tears. But anyway, that was our first show. But you mm-hmm. had and, a, um, many hits from like 1960 oh, to 1964. You had a ton of hits. Yes, that was our first one. And then we had one that was after that called Uptown. Mm-hmm. And that was written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. In fact, um, Bette Midler recorded that later in later years, and that was very similar to Spanish Harlem, which okay. you know was on the same vein, a kind of a Latin feel, and that took us to about number, I think, I think it went to like number two on the Cashbox, and maybe number Billboard wasn't as big then as Cashbox. Cashbox was the thing, and you could pull the car, you could open the, uh, had pictures on the front. And then when you open it, you could actually pull out a serrated page that had all the listings of all of the songs in the order that they were hits. So how did they become? And, uh, it, was it by uh, radio play or sales? How It was by sales, by sales, okay. because what what we would do was when you put out a record, you had a, what they called a test market. The test market was like, say, from between New York down to D.C. And you'd run around all of these places and you do what they call hops. And these were mimed shows where the disc jockeys would have a big place, like a big ballroom, and he'd charge maybe 50 cents a dollar for the kids to come in and dance, and they'd play records, and then they'd have an act to come out, and you'd mime your record so that they could get to see what you looked like, and uh, then we might do three or four of those a night, maybe one in Allentown, one in... um, 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 Haddonfield, New Jersey, you just run around, you know, not very, you know, and you do the song so people could see you, but you were actually miming to the records, and we did that quite a lot. So when they saw you, then they'd go and buy the records, you know, they'd buy the records and then they'd see you, so you built up your fan base like that. Mm-hmm. So we did that for all oh, the first couple of records. We were running all over, uh, all the way down to D.C. area. From Delaware, Baltimore, all of Philadelphia, all those places, because that was the test market. And if the song became a hit in that market, then they knew to expand it further out to the rest of the country. Oh, okay. Wow, that makes so, sense. Yeah. yeah. I always wondered how that worked. Yeah. They, yeah, they had a test market. And uh, if you were selling there, then they'd start uh, sending out. Sending, you know, you start getting gigs for other places, but you were out there what they call promotional tours. You were out there just miming your records, doing your choreography, and the people could see you. And there might be maybe a thousand kids in a ballroom, and they, you know, mm-hmm. so you did that quite a lot in the beginning. For your until you built it. your first U.S. hit was that he's a rebel. No, actually, the first one, There's No Other Like My Baby, I saw in the cash box that it was selling over in uh, Holland. 
because I was in another language. I'm like, what the heck is this? <laughs> so it was selling all over. Okay. You know, wow. I'm like, oh my gosh, this record is selling all over the place. So, and that was your very uh, first song. That was our first song. Okay. Yep. That was the first song. There's no other like my baby. So that goes to show you, we did one song and we were in show business. Never so didn't even know what show business was. Isn't that funny? <laughs> you weren't even trying, and you just ended up there. That's great. No, we weren't. We, you know what? We we weren't trying. We were more enamored of the people that would go on the show. Like, oh my gosh, scary U.S. Bonds. Oh, he's so adorable. Oh my <laughs> gosh, the coasters. Oh my gosh, we're always watching. You know, the Orlans. We were so green. I, I, I sent an email. No, a, a, a text. Like, not a text. What do you call it? I did a Facebook to Steve, who's the only remaining. Uh, member of the Orlons because they helped us out a lot. They were on the show as well. We didn't know what to do. And they tried to show us, no, this is how you bow when you get finished and you walk off like this. We didn't know anything. That's we were great. so, I used to say, we were so green, we were yellow. We, were <laughs> <That's hot, but laughs> we weren't even green yet. <laughs> so, and they helped us out a lot when now, it was the four originals. Well, yeah. In New York then was... So was WABC a big record, a, a big station, you know, for obviously the oh, big yeah. station? Oh, yeah, ABC. Was... Yes, they were. ABC, NBC, WINS, uh, MCA. Yeah, you get to, you got to, the disc jockeys were so important back in those days because the kids really knew them and listened to them. And then I think when it came into disco that they stopped allowing them to say, who they were and really promoting themselves because that's how they'd get a lot of those kids to come to the shows because people knew the disc jockeys, mm -hmm. right? You know, yeah, it, they I, knew them. Somebody said yeah. that that was very interesting. A, a, we had a disc jockey on, and they said that in the '60s that the disc jockey was a, a personality. A, a, and, oh yes, and then the music changed, and then it became more of the music than the disc jockey. Yes. So yes, when the when the when um, I'm trying to think, probably when disco started coming in heavily, and they started using just a lot of studio people to sing, so people could dance. But people a lot of times didn't know who the people even were. The disc jockeys just got they changed the whole format. Maybe the disc jockeys were getting too popular, and they didn't want to have to pay them more. So what they did was just have them not say who it was, and. Not, and now they don't even say, if you hear a record, you don't even know who it is. They're not going to tell you. Yeah. Like, well, how dumb is that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, say, oh, who the heck is that? I don't know. But they, the disc jockeys were very, very important back in those days. Yeah. Now, you also the said knew them. you also did the uh, Dick Clark bus tour. You were telling me a little bit about oh, yeah. that. What year did we, you do that? Oh, gosh. More than once we did them. We did them. Oh, gosh. The first one, I think, might have been in 62 or 3. Yeah, might have been about 63, maybe. No, it was before 63. or after. I think it was 62. But on those shows, we would have like, oh, gosh. He'd have headliners. We'd get on the bus. We'd meet all in Manhattan. We'd get on the bus, and we'd ride all over the states for like 30 days or so. We'd every day in a different place, and there might be, who might headline might have been Dion from Dion and the Bell must might have been the headliner with about, oh gosh, maybe eight or other acts on the bill. Might have been the Drifters, D.D. Sharp. 
uh, Bobby Freeman. Oh, gosh. So many people, so many acts that had hits out at that time. And it was like a promotional, although you were singing live there. And you travel with the band, you get on the bus, and you're playing, say, in Philadelphia today, get on the bus, and you might travel all, you know, night and go down to like Allentown, and then you do a show there in Allentown, and you get back on the bus, and you'd go, you know, but this was all over a matter of like 30 days. So people got to really see you and hear you, and you'd... You'd be working with some of everybody back in those days. It might have been Bobby Rydell. It might have been whomever, you know, that was headlining. But it was always a big show. And we'd go all over the place, all over the country, from Maine to California, oh, doing, seems, you know, it shows. It seems so glamorous, yeah. but you had to be exhausted. I mean, gosh. Well, you know what? When you're, when you're, you're 13, <laughs> when you're 14, 15, 16, it's fun because you're yeah. on the bus and everybody's singing and laughing and you know, so it was fun. You yeah, know, we were, we were kids. Experience. It'd be so nice yeah. to be back in that time. It just seems like it was oh, yeah. a better time. Now we would be too crunched up to sit in a bus all night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but in those days, you, you have care. your back at the age of 14, 15, 16. It's like, okay, this is fun. Because, you you know, you're getting to meet all the stars yourself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you're one of them. You just so don't it know fun. it. Yeah, yeah. right. We had we had a good time, you know. We That's were out great. there on many tours with Dick Clark or Sam Cooke, 62 days, one-nighters all over the country. And then you were with uh, James Brown all over the country, D, D, Dion and the Belmonts. Well, B, the Belmonts had broken up by the time we got. It was just the Belmonts was separate and Dion Jamucci was separate too. And But uh, Bobby Rydell, he was the funniest guy. He had more jokes who just passed <laughs> not too long ago but Bobby Rydell he could have been a comedian he was so funny uh, you all packed in that bus together I imagine there must have been a pretty crazy uh, yeah. time <laughs> oh yeah it was it was but like I said we were all young I don't think anybody was out of their 20s and we were barely I wasn't even in my 20s yet I was still in school mm-hmm. so um, yeah it was a lot of fun back in those days and and kids were were different, you know. You might think, my God, you were so young. Well, I think kids are more responsible And uh, the, in those days. When I tell my friends, I said, uh, my niece was living in New York at the time, and she was gotten accepted into the Joffrey. So she used to go for dance classes. And my mother put her on a train. We lived in uh, right by Forest Hills, Glendale. Mm-hmm. Put her on a train. She'd go to school. You know, she'd get up by herself at nine. Go over to the Joffrey and mother say, call me when you get there. And she'd call when she got there. And the girl was nine years old. You ask a nine-year-old nowadays to get on the train and go to Manhattan from Queens by themselves. It's not going to happen. No way. No way. No way. I don't think yeah, you would, would, would know, want them to. <laughs> I don't think they'd be able yeah, to. Nowadays, you yeah, wouldn't. I don't think I'd send them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah nowadays, you wouldn't. Did you have crazy, chaperones? Chaperones on the uh, tour? Oh, yeah, we had a chaperone. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Pat Wright's mother, Mrs. Wright, became our chaperone when we traveled, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because uh, Lala was 14, I was 16. Uh, Not quite 16, because she was, yeah, she was about 14 when we started with her, because we had to replace Myrna. Myrna left and got married right out of high school. So we needed a fifth girl. 
So we got, my mother said, well, there's a girl that sings around here at the junior high. She's very good. You might want to use her. So we heard her and we thought, oh gosh, she's got a really strong voice. So we did use Lala, but she didn't become the lead singer until the um, fifth record. So she sang along with us, but everything live, we would put her on to do the you know, when we had to do like a long show because her voice was very strong and deep. But um, yeah, we we um we had a good time. We really did. I and can't say the only thing that really peeled us was Phil Spector was not paying. He wouldn't pay. So you hear your records, and he would tell you, "Oh, the record sales haven't come in. All the money hasn't come in. We got a lot of returns. They were just stealing your money, and oh. that's what caused a lot of groups to break up because they weren't being paid. That's the people terrible. were stealing your money. It's terrible. And I read a book called I didn't finish reading called The Hitmen, and it was telling how all of these people who had these fly-by-night record companies, Redbird, Jamie Guyton, and all of these ones like that, the only one that was really good for, for rock and roll acts was Atlantic. Ahmet Erdogan at Atlantic Records did pay, but a lot of these acts with these fly-by-night new record labels like Phil Less and Redbird and Jamie and all, they, were, they came right out, straight out of... Um, like burlesque oh, okay. and they were like gangsters mm-hmm. and and you couldn't get your money you couldn't get your money out of them so you didn't stay they with just them wouldn't pay. you didn't stay yeah. well you, you they made you sign a contract so you didn't have sense enough to know you could walk away if you didn't get paid because you know we were kids mm-hmm. so we didn't really know we could just leave because the contracts were always seven years and then at their option if they wanted to pick it up i mean you can easily do that when somebody signed a contract at 16 so we just didn't know and uh, a lot of people just got ripped off and that's why when you say with a lot of groups what happened they weren't getting paid that's what was happening mm-hmm. you know you're out there you're hearing your songs you're number one and all of this stuff is going on and it's great and wonderful and the audience is great and everything but you're not getting your money and you figure if you've got a number one record you should have some money sure but no they would give you more tales right now i'm trying to collect money because oh i just for an instance fablemans just won a um academy award steven spielberg story Mm -hmm. yeah they have to do run run in there my contract says for any rentals or leases which is what they when they use your stuff, your mm-hmm. voice, and put your name up there. They're renting it. They're not buying it. But even if they were, they still have to pay you. Do you know I still haven't gotten paid for any of those things? You never have. I have That's to now crazy. try to fi- no. I have That's to crazy. try to find where they're hiding the money so that I can get paid because my contract clearly states for any rentals or lease fees, we should be per- paid a certain percentage. They haven't paid. Well, they just don't pay it. So by the time you get an attorney, hopefully you get one that's not going to rip you off mm-hmm. because these record companies are just, they were just thieves. They don't want to pay. And the one who's handling our stuff is Sony. I said, they got all the money in the world. Why aren't you paying me my rental and lease fees? I'm looking up there and I'm seeing Fablemans, the run run. How come I'm not being paid? You got the name up there. You got the song up there. I go to the movies and I hear, uh, then he kissed me being played on Seth Rogen and Charlie's Theron song. Um, a movie called uh, Long Shot. Okay. Not a nickel. Mm. I'm like, what, what, what do you think? 
why won't you pay? They just are the thief. The thievery is in them already. The record business, they just wear you down because you get tired of looking for your money. You get tired. Even if you get an attorney nine times out of ten, they're going to rip you off if you get in court. So it's just very, very frustrating. So nowadays, a lot of people are getting paid. They're doing their own stuff. And they're not dependent on these labels because they don't want to pay. Now, do you still perform? Well, I just stopped right after the pan. Well, I, right before the pandemic, because I got ready to go to work and they shut all the theaters down. So oh, I said, yeah. okay. So mm-hmm. I've only done like about five shows since then. And I said, you know what? Things have changed so much. The airlines have changed. Everything has changed. And I really don't really want to go out there. I did accept a few dates, but only a few, because I said, after almost 60 years, I'm tired of going out there with the airlines and they're late and you lost your luggage and all this. I said, oh, I had enough already. Yeah. (laughs) So the the good days are gone. yeah. yeah, the good days are gone is right. Mm. And um, a lot of people want to still work that have been in my field. But I said a lot of people, the audience is dying out and they can't drive. They can't see at night because <laughs> I'm in my 70s. I don't think so. I think, I think your your music is timeless. And like I, I when I yeah. talk to you on the phone, it's it's such a it's like lightning in the bottle struck how a 14 to 17 year old girls just all of a sudden say, hey, you know, we're going to have this group and you go in and you get, even though he wasn't the best You know guy. what? It happens and you don't even realize it's happening. Yeah. You yeah. know, because when we went in and did this, the record that night, we never thought, well, I was shocked when I heard it on the radio. Right. Well, what do you think, dummy? That's what's supposed to happen. We never thought about it. You just such a and then when time. it came time yeah. to do the when it came time to do the shows, we're like, oh, we have to get clothes. Oh, we have to get pictures. We didn't know anything. So... <laughs> It, it happens as you're going along, right? you know, it's not like some people were a little bit older, like say the four tops and they were aware of how show business was supposed to go. We didn't know anything. You wonder in a way where you're better off, you know, you wonder, you wonder in a way where you're better off that you didn't know because you were just along for the yeah. ride. Yes and no, you know, to your point, you know, you've got contracts and things. Yeah. Like, but, you know, and the then you look at you look at the all, all of the record companies. And I said, those people made out like fat rubs. They just robbed us. Right. You know, and then and then you get angry and say, well, where's my money? Yeah. You know, even when I hear the songs now, I, I went on YouTube. I said, how many songs have us movies and TVs? I so came up with 17, so, 17 places. I'm like, and we haven't been paid a penny for either one. Can they like, even, who is it? Sony. Can they even play them on YouTube? You yeah, they can. Not only can they play them on YouTube. Yeah. But what I'm saying is they use them in movies. Right, but they use them on TV. Doesn't YouTube have to pay? Doesn't YouTube have to pay for something for having you? I think so because there's a separate agency called Sound Exchange, and they make all of the radio stations that see all of the streaming music. They make them pay us, but they went a lot of years without paying. Mm -hmm. So now this company, Sound Exchange, pays. You know, lots and lots of people, they all get their money. But this is for streaming music only, Pandora, um, all of like that. They make them pay. But but I still get a little bit from sales for from Sony, who handles Phil Spector stuff. Mm -hmm. And I said, because all the publishing companies are the ones who who give the movies, who rent them out and lease them to them. But I said, with all the money in the world that Sony's got, why won't they pay 
Right. I don't understand it. Mm. Some people, that fevery is in them from birth. Yeah, you I know? think so. And, and you, you know, you were young and they took advantage of, of your inexperience and your youth. And and that's just terrible. And, and the record companies, you know, they're big, powerful. They're in it to make money. You know, that's what their thing yep. is. They want to uh, make but why money. Can't, why can't they share? Why no, do they, they should. keep it all? Yeah. They should. Yes, they <laughs> should. Know? Definitely. Agreed. But, yeah. Agreed. <laughs> It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And and you had, like, your songs are constantly placed on the 500 top songs. It's not like... And that's what I'm saying. And why why don't they pay us? Mm. They'll give us royalty for sales, but who's buying the Do Run Run at this age, at this time? Some people must be buying it because I still get a little bit of royalties. Mm. But as far as they're using them in TV, they're using them in their movies... They don't pay you anything. And you see, you're sitting in the movie, you see your name go up mm-hmm. on the credits, you hear your song, you say, well, where's my money? You I, know, everybody I made always, money but you. I always thought they had to ask permission or pay. I, I, I guess I'm naive in that. They do have to ask permission, but they don't have to ask. They ask who's the publisher. The publisher is owning, holding the songs. They have to go to them to get it. Right. So not so the artist. It, right. Okay. That makes no, sense. No, they don't have to go to you to get it. So they go and get it from the publisher and they put it in a movie and they pay them a fee and they're supposed to pay you a fee. And they they don't just pay. don't pass it through to you. They just don't pass it through. Hmm. So I'm like, why not? Because if, if you can find me, I'll pay you. But <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? Do I have to find where the money is in order to get it? Mm, yeah, that's not fair. That's yeah, definitely crazy. not fair. It's not fair. It's horrible. So I'm still fighting that battle. But I said, oh, well. Well, keep Hopefully fighting. One yeah, day. keep fighting. Don't give up. Don't give up. <laughs> but know, I will. Your I story will. is amazing, though. What what a great story and amazing. Yeah, yeah. it's a pleasure to. But have we had, had a lot of. Uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun back in the day, and like I said, your dad being a DJ back in the day, DJs were kings. Yeah, they were. They you were. Know? They were. You know. I just sometimes listen to his shows and it, it, it's amazing. But, you know, you all sort of work together. It was, uh, you know, your music and the disc jockeys and the radio and the time. It was just a magical time. And and I really yes, appreciate appreciate your time. And, and I, I could listen to you talk all night because your story is so interesting. And so, you know, you see him portrayed on the movies, you know, they're sitting on a bus, yes, yes. but, but somebody who really lived it and you went through it is, yeah. is amazing. Oh my gosh. And yes, especially, it was fun. Especially your first show at the Apollo. I mean, that to me is oh just. Oh my God. Oh, that, that is so, you know, after so many years, you forget stuff, but some things like that, you, you don't never forget. forget. I don't think so. Well, Didi, we're going to let yeah. you go and thank you again and best of luck in your future, you know, uh, future business that you're hopefully, hopefully we'll see you back out on the, on the stage. Yeah. I've got one coming up. I'm, I just don't want to get out there. Like if it's not too difficult, I'll take something, but yeah. if it's yeah. a pain in the butt, I don't take it. Life's but, too short, right? Yeah. You got to be happy doing what yeah. you're doing. So. Yeah. Well, it's been a true honor <laughs> okay. to speak with you. Thank you so, so much. much. And um, okay. all the best to you. And, and thanks for your time tonight. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 Oh, we got to do the happy feeling. One more time. Do you remember? (laughs) All right, let's do it, everybody, one more time. 
When I was a little feller, my papa used to say to me. If you're hearing my voice right now, there's a good chance you want to hear more about HOA. The story of the man behind the morning mayor is one that certainly needs to be told, and a goal is to have this story made into a movie. The script is written, and your support will help us get to the next level. If you feel motivated to do so, click the donate button in the about section. All proceeds will go towards seeing the story of Herbert Oscar Anderson on the big screen. Goodbye, God bless, and I thank you so very much.